0: Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. Our reading today is going to come from the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using one of our provided Bibles, that can be found on page 807. We'll be reading chapter 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiyad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, And Zadok, the father of Achem, and Achem, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word for us today.
1: Let's pray together as we look to God's word here in Matthew chapter one. Father, be with us, we pray. Help us to see and to behold the preciousness of your son, the crucified and risen Christ, our Messiah King. Be with us. As we do these things together, as we look to your word together now, in Jesus' name, amen. You've probably noticed we have a bit of a strange relationship with kings and and honestly, even just authority in our culture and context, uh, that context being modern America. Uh, In many ways, our forefathers started this country because they didn't want a king. Uh, and they were deeply suspicious of government authority in particular. Uh, some groups famously really wanted George Washington uh, to be the first king here in America, but he refused. He did not want to be king. And this led to sort of the presidency that we have with its term limits and, and many other checks and balances. But, but for some of these reasons, it can be really hard for us to understand how those in the ancient Near East would have felt about their kings. And see, for them to have a king and for that king to be in power meant that they and their people had the opportunity, even the likelihood of prospering. Kings were, were basically human symbols of the power and stability of the kingdoms they ruled. And to some extent, that's the case with our president and these things today. But, but these kings were seen as, as literal protectors and preservers of their people. And so to see your king alive and well, uh, much less to be with your king in close proximity would have first been an intimidating thing, but also an incredible honor. Few likely would have met their king in this way. Uh, But if they had, in most cases, it would have meant all was well, That they were safe, assuming they were in good standing, and there was no impending threat sort of looming over the kingdom. The same way to see your king weak or to see him even killed was the ultimate sign that chaos was coming. Because to have no king at all in the ancient world meant that you were then at the whims, you were under the rule and the reign of someone else's king. And that hardly ever went well for anyone. As we begin this series through the Gospel of Matthew, a series that will take us more than a full calendar year uh, to complete, it's important to understand that this was precisely where the Jewish people found themselves during the life and ministry of Jesus, which this book will recount. Uh, The Jews did occupy the promised land in part, but only because they were allowed to by King Caesar and his Roman Empire, which was truly in power in the region at the time. Jews, in reality, had very little power. They were something like a, a sad shell of the kingdom they once were in the days of the Old Testament. And most importantly, they did not have a king. And yet here in the first words of the entire New Testament, Matthew begins this work by making an incredible claim. In particular, he calls this book, quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you might be thinking, really? I mean, that doesn't seem like an incredible claim to me. I don't know if you heard that reading. It was kind of a boring reading. It was just a collection of names. I don't, get, I don't see where you're coming here. My aim this morning is to show us from Scripture just how huge that claim there in verse 1 truly is. First, this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, is very similar to a prominent heading that is used in both Genesis chapter 2 and also Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis, these headings are used to introduce lengthy origin stories that come right after them. In other words, chances are by using that specific phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew is more than likely signaling to his mostly Jewish readers that this book he's writing is a new genesis, if you will. The story of a new beginning for God and his people, a new creation even through the man, Jesus Christ. Not to mention, even that word Christ, is it's not just a proper name. It's not his last name at all. It's a title, and it refers to the anointed one or the Messiah of God. In other words, this could be read as the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Matthew's Jewish readers would have been very familiar with what he meant by that, uh, namely that this Jesus is the long-anticipated redeemer of God's covenant people, that he really is the point and the culmination of the entire Old Testament story we even saw in our call to worship going all the way back to Genesis chapter one. Matthew also mentions here that this Jesus Messiah is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, in one sense... Every Jewish male is technically a son of Abraham. If you're not too familiar with the Old Testament, let me just kind of explain that briefly. Uh, By just the 11th chapter of the book of, of Genesis, of the whole Bible, the entire earth is filled with violence and sin and also these different raging nations that were all sort of set at odds against one another. It was complete chaos. And in the midst of that chaos, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God promises to raise up the descendants of a man named Abraham into his very own chosen nation. Almost as if he looks down at this chaotic world filled with raging nations and he says, I want one of those for myself. And through that nation, he promises to bless all of the others. That's the backdrop of the story of Scripture. And so being a Jewish male, it was no surprise necessarily that Jesus was the son of Abraham. All Jewish men were. But to be Israel's Messiah was to be the specific son of Abraham the Jews had always longed for. Since the very beginning, I mean, even ever since God promised that the, that the, the offspring of Eve would one day crush the head of of the serpent, one of her sons. So to call this man the son of Abraham and the Christ of Israel was to name him as the ultimate redeemer, the one through whom God's promise to bless all nations would finally come. And to identify him as the son of David was to identify him not only as a Messiah and redeemer, but also as the king of God's people. Uh, Much, much later in the story of the Old Testament, uh, after Abraham's descendants start to multiply, after they're sent to and then delivered from slavery in Egypt, after they conquer the promised land, and after they establish themselves as a real nation, after all of that, this man named David will be appointed as easily the greatest and most revered king in Israel's history. Not only that, But while he was king, one of the most monumental prophecies in the entire Old Testament was shared and made, really, to him. And it was about one of his male descendants, one of his sons, if you will. In particular, the prophet Nathan spoke these words to King David. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, right, after you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So, whoever this winds up being, right, I want you to notice, he will be a physical descendant, a human son in the family, the royal line of David. But that's not all. He continues He says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is not just any ordinary king. I will be to him a father, God says through Nathan, and he shall be to me a son, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now for context, again, that was roughly 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. So in in light of that prophecy, can we now see why the Jews would be waiting for a son of David to come and to be their eternal king? And, And also then what this means, therefore, for Matthew to call Jesus the Christ and the son of David. What it meant is that he was this son of David. What it meant is that God's eternal king had come. And as we zoom out to consider the the actual content of this royal genealogy, these claims become even more clear and more powerful. For the rest of the passage, in verse 2 through 17, Matthew's basically showing us his work. He's tracing that royal family line all the way from Abraham to David to Christ. Uh, This genealogy is organized, you may have noticed, in three very neat and tidy sections. Uh, So let's look a little bit at the structure. First, the section in verses 2 through 6, it it brings us from Abraham to David. So it brings us from that first promise for God to bless all nations through Israel to the reign of Israel's greatest king. Then the second section, starting at the end of verse 6 through 11, gets us from David, that greatest king, to the collapse of the kingdom of Israel. As as Matthew calls it, the deportation to Babylon, the, the exile. And the final section, verses 12 to 17, gets us from that exile, that deportation, to Christ. And this is the period in which God's chosen people were ruled by other kings. Until now, is Matthew's point. This genealogy is not meant to be exhaustive per se, it's probably not a literal, unbroken line from one descendant to the next. There are possibly even gaps between some of these generations. But in the ancient Near East, this idea of being a man's son did not have to mean that you were his literal biological son. It could also simply mean that you were his male descendant. Uh, In the same way uh, that Jesus, for instance, is said to be the son of Abraham here and the son of David, even though we're about to read next, that he had no human father at all uh, because God is his father. And yet by being born of this Virgin Mary who was engaged and then eventually married to Joseph, who is a male descendant of the king, Jesus has entered the royal family line. He is a son both to God and to David. At least one other detail is worth noting here. Typically, These ancient genealogies were traced exclusively through the male descendants with no uh, reference to the women in the family at all. But here, notice there are four women included. Uh, In particular, they are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. If you're looking uh, for Bathsheba's name, you won't actually find it. In this case, she isn't mentioned by name, but she is referred to clearly as the wife of Uriah. This is significant because first, it's a break from tradition. Uh, which means it would have at least begged the question, well, why is Matthew including these women? And at the very least, we can be sure it shows us that these prominent women through the story of the Old Testament were always meant all along to be pointing and to be leading us to Jesus. Uh, even Bathsheba and the incident of, of infidelity with he, she and David, through that God was working to bring us our true king, Even through a Gentile prostitute named Rahab, who sort of stumbles her way into this story. And through all of these details, God is sovereignly working to bring us Christ. It also seems significant that two of these women are not only women, but also Gentile women. Rahab and Ruth were non-Israelites who married into Abraham's family line. And so some might say this royal line is less than pure. It's been tainted, right? Right? by Gentile blood. But Matthew seems to have included these Gentile women to make a very important and powerful point. uh, That this man, Jesus, was not only born to reign as king of Israel. uh, That he was born as Israel's king so that people of all nations can once again be united under his all-encompassing rule and reign. As if he has really always been working through Gentiles too as part of this whole story so that he could use Israel to bless and redeem them as well. It's not entirely new, in other words. It's not just a New Testament idea. It's always been God's plan. And so with just a few reflections here on these opening words of Matthew's gospel, I I hope we can see that he begins this gospel, he begins this story by making a gargantuan claim that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah king we have all been waiting for. He is saying here loud and clear, friends, the king is here. But the way we respond to the good news of this king's arrival may largely depend on our situation. Throughout this gospel, over and over, we're gonna encounter at least three different groups of people. I'm gonna call them for our purposes today, Jerusalem elites, Galilean commoners, and Gentile outsiders. Three different people we'll encounter. The truth is, each of these groups will react to Jesus very differently, and chances are, had they read this genealogy, they would have reacted to it even very differently as well. The Jerusalem elites were the most religious Jews who had lots of power and influence in Israel. They lived most often in the capital city of Jerusalem. And they sort of settled into this arrangement, right, between the government people of God and, and the, the empire of, of, of Rome uh, that was sort of working out pretty well for them. And so later in this story, when they meet Jesus, and if they were to read this genealogy in Matthew, they probably would have been inclined to scoff at the idea of him, to disregard him. Can't possibly be that Matthew, of all people, a mere tax collector, could get all of these things right. He must be mistaken. Jesus is really no king at all. Listen, we'll tell you when the king has arrived. Galilean commoners, on the other hand, were slightly less religious Jews who did not have much power or influence. Most of Jesus' first disciples fit into this category. Uh, They were a little more rough around the edges. They lived in the region of Galilee, which is a northern sort of country, rural uh, extension uh, of the city. Most were not particularly fond of the Roman Empire. Uh, And they had many felt needs and burdens. Their lives were just much harder. And later in the story, when they meet Jesus, and if they were to read this genealogy, many of them would have been tempted to joyfully receive Jesus, but sometimes for the wrong reasons, because they assume that he came with the promise of earthly power and influence for them. To put them in this elite class, or even just to meet their needs, to heal their sick and to give sight to their blind without the spiritual transformation that comes with repentance and faith and the forgiveness of sins. The king is here, Galileans may have thought, so let's start clawing our way back to power. Gentile outsiders, on the other hand, were not Jewish at all. Uh, they were the pagan citizens of this Roman Empire. Throughout the gospel, uh, they will come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but they'll share one thing in common. They had virtually no history or even familiarity with the Old Testament, uh, which means that they did not know of this promised blessing through Abraham or the eternal throne of David. Uh, and to be honest, many of them probably didn't really care about these things because they were not waiting for a king at all. They had their king, and his name was Caesar Caesar. And so when Jesus uh, meets these friends along the way, and if they were to read this genealogy, some of them would have probably been perplexed, maybe even a little annoyed or defensive at the thought of Matthew's claim. Listen, I don't know about all this Jewish nonsense, but listen, if if he is their king, then I am his enemy, they would say. Chances are we may identify with, with one of these groups, at least more so than the others, And in fact, through this series, I want us to kind of watch for these groups and almost connect them to our life experience. Uh, It can be helpful, for instance, to identify these Jerusalem elites with the religious elites of our day, which frankly may include some of us, uh, those with plenty of experience and and maybe even influence within religious communities. As we read their response to this king, Matthew is announcing, we might want to consider in, in what ways am I tempted to respond like they do? Or we can identify the Galilean commoners with sort of the, the less religious commoners of our day. Those who are kind of Christian in, in superficial ways, uh, cultural Christians, nominal Christians. They might sort of start showing up this time of year, but you know we're not going to see them in February. You know what I mean? Uh, they don't have much power or influence within religious communities. And as we read this, if you identify with that group, you might want to consider, in what ways am I tempted to respond like them? Or we could identify Gentile outsiders with those irreligious outsiders of our day, the people who just could, could give a care about the gospel that we believe in because they either just reject religion altogether or they hold to maybe another one. But what we will see by the end of this story is that while each of these groups is different and for that reason tempted to respond differently to Jesus, Jesus has come to be king of them all. He truly has. And so with that in mind, with this huge claim that he is in fact the king we've been waiting for, let's, let's consider a few important questions about what this means for us today. And really, over the course of this series, this next year plus, as we walk through Matthew, we need to keep these questions in view, I think, and even reconsider them each time as we get a better glimpse of who Jesus is and what it means to be part of his kingdom. Now responding to this great royal genealogy, I want to start by asking this first, do you need a king? Do you need a king? Maybe like these Jerusalem elites, your life feels pretty comfortable as it is. Uh, You've maybe made religion part of your life and your identity and all of that, but, but the thought of actually submitting your life to a king, it almost seems like a little bit of a demotion for you. because you're kind of in charge of your life right now. Or maybe, like the Gentile outsiders, you have no interest in all this king or his kingdom stuff. Maybe you already have a political leader for your king, for instance, or a celebrity, maybe even a significant other. But whoever it may be, it's not Jesus, and so you don't really feel you have the room for another king. Uh, in both cases, as we read this, if, if you take it seriously, You may feel a bit threatened by it, to be honest, a little frustrated. Because all kings, especially one like this, tend to make certain demands on our life. They don't just leave us alone to sort of decide for ourselves how we ought to live. They have this way of ruling and reigning over our lives and even even defining the very purpose of our life. And if we don't think we need a king, if we're fine on our own, we, we just won't stand for that. And yet, we'll also see that submitting to this king and relying on him is the greatest possible good. And it is the key to every other spiritual blessing. Not to mention, we're also going to see that to submit to this king as our king means to become fellow citizens of his kingdom that is, with all the other citizens. Of his kingdom, and we have to stop living as if we are our own little kings of our own little kingdoms and and actually start to order and organize our lives as if we truly are part of a heavenly kingdom together. And so I want to ask you today is is that something you feel you need in your life? Uh, If we don't really want to be part of this kingdom, the truth is we don't ultimately want Jesus as our king because this book is written primarily to and for the Jewish people, the former Israelites. This gospel shows us more so than the other three gospels even what it truly means to be God's new covenant people now that he has sent this king of all. For instance in chapter 16, when some of his disciples start to see that he truly is the Messiah, Jesus will promise to build his church. Now at that word, at that point the word church Did not refer to, you know, religious nonprofits of the Christian variety. Um, That word church was well known, but it actually meant uh, more of a political assembly. Almost like a senate, if you will. A Sanhedrin or or a common council in our cities. King Jesus is building a heavenly assembly. a, A specific group of people gathered together to do the business of his kingdom here on earth. He even calls these earthly churches to represent his heavenly authority by binding people here on earth to his heavenly kingdom and loosing people here on earth from his heavenly kingdom, all based on their repentance and profession of faith in the king. And here at Redemption, we, we actually practice this. This is something we really do and take very seriously even through the practice of church membership, which you heard about in our announcements this morning. We believe that Matthew here in this book teaches us how to commit to one another and to live together even in these real kingdom-representing local churches. Uh, This is what it means to be a member. It means to say, yes, I I need this Jesus as my king. I am with him, and I am with his people here at Redemption. Um, We're going to vote tonight to welcome Jess Matheson into that. Is she here today? I don't know if she's here. She might not be here. I don't want to put her on the spot. I mean, I am. I am kind of putting her on the spot, but uh, we will do that later tonight. That's what we're doing when we do that. But the point is this. If we don't really believe in this invisible war between two spiritual kingdoms, we probably won't see much need for a heavenly king or linking our lives together with his people. If in our hearts we don't think we need a king or the other citizens of his kingdom, this series and, and really the entire Christian life will be sort of an exercise in futility for us. We may be able to convince ourselves that Jesus is our king somehow, however we choose to define his rule and reign, but we will not truly experience the power of these things together. Uh, We may even find that we wind up being like one of the people Matthew talks of in, in chapter seven of this gospel, who thought that they knew him so well, but he says to them, depart because I never knew you. As we continue in this series, we'll really have to grapple with this question. Do I really need a king to begin with? Much less a king like the one Jesus claims to be. Which leads to our next question. Assuming you do need a king, well, then what kind of king do you want? What kind of king are you looking for? Uh, Some Jews would have read this genealogy and thought, hey, great. I've been waiting for this. We finally have our Messiah King. I'm really excited about that. But then as they kept reading over and over, this Jesus would violate their expectations and fall woefully short of what they were hoping and longing for. For many, Jesus will not prove to be the king they want. Because in their minds, they have some other vision of what that ideal king would look like. In the same way, it could be that some of us think we want a king. At least we like the idea of that. We like how it sounds. But as we keep reading and find out what this King Jesus is all about, we may come to find, I don't really want a king like that, right? This may be especially the case for the religious elites and the less religious commoners among us who only entertain this thought of a king if he either protects their status and power or simply is concerned with meeting their felt needs. We'll see, certainly, this Jesus comes with grace and compassion and meets many felt needs, but more than that, he presses beyond them, further and deeper to our more foundational underlying need, namely our spiritual need for things like redemption and the forgiveness of sins. If we are not chiefly interested in these things, Jesus will not be the kind of king we want not to mention far from avoiding things like hardship and suffering, this king will establish his rule and reign of all possible ways by being brutally executed and hung on a cross. Is that the king you want? More than that, he will even claim that to be his disciple, we must take up our crosses and follow him. And and again, church, when he does, we will all have to be honest. In the depths of our hearts, we will have to ask ourselves, is this the kind of king that I want? Many would prefer a Messiah king who's a bit more accommodating to our modern sensibilities. One who's not quite so clear about good and evil, right and wrong. One who sort of lives and lets live, doesn't insist we believe certain things about him or his father, build our life on those things. Or one who just encourages and comforts only and always, but never calls for repentance and life Change Whatever our desires may be, the difference between this king here in Matthew and that idealized king we have in our minds is that this king is here. Matthew has announced his arrival. He has come. He is real. And whatever desires we may have in our sinful hearts for a king, this is the king that God has sent to save us. So let's surrender our wish lists. Let's lay aside our desires for the kind of king we want. And over this next year, let's allow Matthew to show us the true king that God has said we truly need. Finally, with each Sunday through this series, starting now, let's also be asking number three, what does it mean for me to bow to this king, Jesus? Do you need a king? What kind of king do you want, and and what does it mean to bow to this one, right? With every story in this book, Jesus will give us one strange glimpse after another into what his heavenly kingdom is really like and what it means to be a part of it. How radically different it is to live as a citizen of this kingdom than as a citizen of this world. With each story, it will become clearer and clearer. He is not just coming to be king of Israel or any one nation for that matter. He is not just here to rule and reign over territories and armies and earthly economies, and we can't just pay him some taxes and then sort of bow to him superficially in public and then go about our lives in private as if nothing has changed. No, because he rules even over our private lives, over everything that happens in our homes, in our marriages, even our hearts. We're going to see with each story here that to bow to him as king means to surrender everything we have, everything we love, and even who we are, our very identities. It means to lose our life even and then to find new and better eternal life in him. This Jesus is such a glorious, all-encompassing king that he deserves full authority over even our feelings and our emotions, which can tend to be very God-like these days, we need to give him and his word far more weight. He deserves full authority over our sexual identities and activity. We need to let him define these things for us and the boundaries that are necessary to keep them good and healthy and God-honoring. He deserves authority over our marriages and our parenting relationships. These things do not belong to us. They belong to him and are meant to point us to him. He is the point of them. This Jesus deserves to have all authority even over our life plans and our aspirations. His plans need to matter more. And even over our time and our money. We need to hold our our schedules and our bank accounts with open hands before him saying, use these, King Jesus, as you see fit. As great a royal introduction as this is, we'll see at the very end of our series, there's also an incredible bookend to sort of complete this gospel. To start, Matthew announces the king is here. And in the end, we see this king ascend to his glorious throne. In the end, he promises that even if he's not here, even if he's there ruling from heaven, he will be with us always. Just before he ascends to heaven, after his resurrection from the dead and victory over sin, he will tell his closest disciples this. He will say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is, he's calling us to make more followers of him throughout all the earth among every people. And he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And again, behold, I am with you always, he says, to the end of the age. Church, this entire book, in one sense, is the story of King Jesus' coronation. It is the process by which he has truly become our eternal heavenly king. Today, we begin by simply seeing that this king has come. He's here, he's Jesus. But from this point each week, as we move closer to that great commission, as we move closer to his ascension, I pray this series would help us to see what this all really means for us. Who this king is, how he really operates, And what it means to bow to him. Because we may not be very fond or even familiar with this idea of having a king. But he is here. And this king deserves our full attention.